You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, bonus episode number nine, Mo Foster. This week, we are lucky enough to be joined by the legendary bass player, Mo Foster. John, what are we going to be discussing with Mo today? So today, Mo talks about the Butterfly Ball, his new CD, and his career in between, um, and a lot of great and funny stories, too, yeah, Mo- uh, that really don't have anything to do with music. <laughs> I know, that's our favorite kind. So um, Some that do. So yeah we, yeah, we had a blast talking with Mo. Hopefully you enjoy listening to it. And uh, here we go. Here's our interview with Mo Foster. All right, today we are joined by Mo Foster, who needs no introduction on our show. Mo, thank you so much for joining us. Great pleasure. So, um... Wanted to start off, you've got this great new album coming out. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about where that came from and, and, and why that's coming out now? How long have you got? <laughs> All day for you. <laughs> it is a long story. I'll just show it to you. This is the... Uh... Oh, yeah, that's the cover. Ah, great. And uh, <clears throat> that was designed by a friend of mine who I showed her the, the cover today, Brubeck's Time Out album. Oh, great. She just sort of vaguely inspired by that, and that's where it came from. <clears throat> um, I'll try and cut this down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a, in the 70s, I had a band called Affinity. We were a kind of jazz rock band, and we were managed by Ronnie Scott at the club. And that lasted its course. The singer was Linda Hoyle. And many, many years later, I re-met her at a reunion gig at my university, and uh, she came and joined us on stage and sang, and it was good fun, and we started writing. And um, the outcome of that was an album for her, this is five years ago, called The The Fetch, which I had to mix and finish in Canada, which is where she lives, London, Ontario. And um, I'd set up a launch cake for her at a jazz club in London called the Pizza in Deed Street. And I got the greatest players to, to support her for this for this launch gig. And two weeks before the show, I got a call from Canada, a very croaky voice saying, she's so ill, poor girl, she couldn't make, make the flight. So I was suddenly stuck with the five musicians in town and a, a ready gig and nothing to do for it because the, I couldn't play the songs. So I frantically rewrote everything and came up with all my favorite standards and new ones, just enough to get through the set. I recorded it and uh, I was amazed that it worked. Everybody rose to the occasion. And um, after a lot, it took lots of months, years in fact, to get everyone together more, write more, do more gigs, which I recorded. And all the way trying to find some method of releasing this because everyone says the CD is dead, but I don't think it is. Um, and finally, after so many rejections, I felt like J.K. Rowling, you know, in the Indus turned <laughs> I found a, a company called Red Track Music who liked the idea. And here we are, it's coming out in March. So it's a, it's a, it's a sort of 10-year story that led up to it. Oh, so was this um, recording from... From then, from 10, 10 years ago? or no, for, Well, it's at various points throughout the last five years, oh, different, okay. different weeks. And I just chose the best tune. It took a long time to listen to everything mm-hmm. and fine-tune it. <clears throat> all, all in this little room, you see? This is my my studio. That's, it's great. Yeah. I mean, we were... Uh, um, we, we got that uh, advanced copy of it and checked it out, and we were listening to it even before uh, you got on. And the thing that... Uh, it amazes me about it, 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 as well as obviously the playing, but the production of it is is so good. We're listening, and then you forget yeah. that it's. Then all of a sudden, this crowd comes and starts clapping, and you. <laughs> it, it's a pri- every after every tune, I keep getting surprised. Like, oh, oh yes, it's a it's a live album. It's well, what can I say? 
it just took a very long time to get it to sound like that. Lots of fine tuning. I took advice from some great engineers, people like Ken Scott, who did lots of Beatles stuff at Abbey Road. And uh, because they, they have different ears to musicians, they, they think differently. And so I was able to pick up some pretty good tips on how to spread things out, make them clearer, what to get rid of, all that kind of stuff. Well, it, it definitely paid off because it, it sounds mm. great. And you've got a, a really good collection of um, some some really good classic tunes as well as some uh, originals sure. as well. Sure. So, so what kind of, um, what made you come to this collection of songs? Was it just kind of over, over time you decided these are some of the ones you guys enjoy playing the most? So, some I've wanted to play for 50 years. Um, some I found on the way. We tried, a, lot, a lot of tunes we tried that just didn't work. Um, I was trying to, but what happened was I toured with Gil Evans. Do you know Gil Evans, the composer of Ranger? I know, I know the name, yep. He, he worked with Miles Davis. He produced some albums like Sketches of Spain in, in the 60s. And I toured with his British band. And it was a treat to, to hear how this man worked and um, get his views on everything. And... What I was trying to do for some of these tunes was it was hit the Gillens Orchestra in miniature to kind of condense 12 people down to about five, <clears throat> which is hard because you have to keep swapping roles or figure out who does the unisons. And it was a challenge all the way, um, kept changing. In fact, the, the fiddle player, Chris Haig, which you probably heard, mm-hmm. only came in in the last uh, couple of months. I, I had to overdub him because he wasn't at the gigs. Oh, I was going to ask really, about that because I noticed he wasn't on the list of musicians. So I said, that sounds an awful lot like a fiddle. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, I've known him for a long time. He's a terrific uh, fiddle player with bluegrass and everything like that. <clears throat> and um, I love the sound he makes. And I slowly realized that he could do unisons with soprano sax. And it worked. It was a beautiful texture. Uh, but it took a bit of experimenting. And uh, there you go. That's what it was. So we, um, I think long before we even knew your name, we both became familiar with you um, through your work on a couple of albums in particular, um, one of them being The Butterfly Ball. And um, uh, personally, I'm a bass player, so I definitely connect with bass when I hear it and when I really like it that can definitely tilt an album in my favor and around that time i think that probably the three albums that i was most interested in were jesus christ superstar the butterfly ball and the wizards convention and um <laughs> you you represent two-thirds of of the, the bass playing on, on that and you so <laughs> Before I knew who you were or Alan Spenner were, I was always just, you know, because I probably had like a dubbed copy of, of a cassette or something and no, no liner notes, no way of getting the actual album sure. in the U.S. No, uh, the last two albums. America, I'm sorry? No American players in your list? <laughs> no, well, not, not at that time anyway. <laughs> but the, the, these albums, oh, Jesus Christ Superstar was easy to come by, but the, the, the last two was basically impossible. My friend John here was able to get a copy mm-hmm. of uh, The Butterfly Ball, and we, we didn't know anything about it. We are like, what, what is this album? We just knew it was vaguely related to Deep Purple. It was why we got into it. Sure. And um, then I start to learn, like, oh, Mo Foster. This is why. This is why I really, really dig this album. So, um, and I think uh, I was amazed, amazed while we we're doing it. I kept thinking, or oh, I even said it to Roger, why, why can't you not be it? Why aren't you doing this? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that was. I think I probably assumed. We probably both assumed that it was Roger Glover yeah. playing. Although when you listen to it, I mean, it doesn't sound like Roger Glover at all. Um, he's on. He's on one track with John Gustafson. That track. Oh, okay. Oh, he must. He must play behind, behind, behind the veil or something. I can't remember. Uh, so the um, yeah, like I, I, I think the 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 thing that that they have in common with the Jesus Christ Superstar too is it's you've got um not just a bunch of musicians who don't know know each other, but you've got these kind of core bands that are supporting the album. So, um, as far as the Butterfly Ball goes, what do you um, what do you remember from that album recording? You've got kind of a few phases. You've got the album, you've got the concert, and then you've got 
the movie. So, w- what's your kind of memory of that of that time? Well, the album was was a treat to record. We were doing it at a studio called Kingsway, which is where um, a lot of famous records are made. Jimi Hendrix did Hey Joe there, that, for example. And uh, that's where I met Roger. And the players, Ray Fennick was on guitar and Eddie Hardin was around, different drummers. But the, it, was, it was so musical. I was I'm so impressed by Roger's musicality, by the way he... It, it was so completely not a Deep Purple record. And uh, lovely. Um, and then eventually... Um, well, it was intended to be the music for an animation. You've probably seen Love Is All. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that... I think the money ran out or something like that, but... In order, in order to keep it going, the, the idea was to put on this concert at the Albert Hall with lots of purple guests and film it, and it would be it would be for charity. And the, the concert was fantastic; everybody rose to the occasion. And sometimes performing the song on stage for the first time, you know, you never heard it before, and it went down very well. And, and then it was we went to see the film. I mean, I've told you this. It was a, um, a, a showing in a, in a cinema in Chelsea. And we watched in horror as uh, these fucking bad actors in bad rabbit outfits suddenly leapt onto screen, ballet dancers, and it was appalling. And Roger very noticeably stood up and left the building. It was, it was, it was disgusting. We're hoping that the bits that were cut out are somewhere that could be brought back in again. Have you seen the concert bits on YouTube at all? Yeah, we've we've yeah. I've seen the movie. We've we've both watched the movie. We've we've um we did a four part episode series on the whole album, and the the final part was watching the movie. And um, it's, when you when you see Glenn Hughes singing or, or David Coverdale, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. And then on come the rabbits. <laughs> It's 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 one of the more baffling things I've ever seen in my life, and and, and frustrating, yeah. I should say, because like you said, I'm I mean I would I would I would pay a large sum of money to have to see the uncut concert footage because you've got the this sure. juxtaposition of some of the worst amateur cinematography ever <laughs> with one of the greatest concerts. Like we, we've had the question from our viewers before, if you could go back in time, what would you do? And as I would go to the Butterfly Ball concert at the Royal Albert yeah. Hall and be there in person. And we've talked to a few of our listeners who were there and talk about how incredible it was and very strange it, to define it that way. The, the, I think the one very funny outcome was that you, you saw Vincent Price sitting high up in the organ loft mm-hmm. the album. Very impressive, very um, dominant. And uh, when the show was over, everybody forgot about him and he got locked in. <laughs> Vincent Price is locked in the Albert Hall. <laughs> Did he have to spend the night or did he get out in the time? I think he was found. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, brings us to uh, an, uh, the other album that we discussed, which is The Wizards Convention. And um, we had gotten, when, when it first got released on CD, this kind of the butterfly ball with a few tracks from the wizards convention so of course we there was really no internet to do research at the time and and we're like what is this there's a few extra tracks here that we really like too how do we get this album now um there wasn't something you'd find even in secondhand shops around here so um how did that project come about well it's eddie hardin's project um i think he just wanted to carry on he, he liked what had happened with butterfly ball I think Denis co-wrote, co-wrote Love Is All, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wanted to carry on, so he just got some of the same guys, same studio, and uh, a few of his other mates, and that's, that's it, really. And it, yeah, it does kind of lend itself to being almost a sort of sequel to that album. And yeah, sure. Carries on that there, was, there was another one as well, at least number two, Wizards 2. Have you seen that one? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that was in the, the mid '90s, right? Yes. Yeah. So what was uh, you had some other projects with Eddie Harden too? What was your relationship like with him musically? I have one memory of Eddie. Um, it would be a Sunday morning. I'm having breakfast. The phone rings. It's Eddie. He says, 
can you come down the studio? I said, what time? He said, two hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> it was spontaneous, that's all. Um, and he, I, it was really just a working relationship. I just turned up in the studios and that, that was it. So, so he, he'd kind of just give you some, like a, a structure of the song that was written, some charts, and you'd just do your thing? Yes, yes. There's no, there's no instruction. Of course, Charter, if I was lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly, people like him and Jerry Rafferty, who I work with a lot, you, you, you sit next to them while they play the piano and write your own chart, writing versions and shapes, little riffs, whatever. It's up to you. And that's what you're hired for, you know, to do that. You know, when you when you hear kind of a, like a, like a, like the baseline like you have on like a song like "Money to Burn," you know, as a young bass player, you hear that and your ears perk up, and that's 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 what you want to play like, you know. Hearing- I, I got annoyed by that. There was a riff in the middle of that which I wrote and uh, never got paid for it. Oh, uh oh, <laughs> bit late now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's got to be um, that whole process of accrediting. Everything's got to be very. Difficult. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, the famous ones are things like uh, Anthony Jackson, who wrote the intro to Money, Money. Do you know the song, Leo James? Yep. Well, it's a brilliant bass intro, and the song is nothing without that, is it? And he had a long fight. He did get something for it in the end, which is good. You can see why some bands have such hard feelings and have these messy breakups and everything when, when that, that well, part of yeah, it can get very challenging. Yeah, the, the smart ones are like, I think it's, is it you two? Or, or they just split everything four ways. That's simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like the easiest way, but then sometimes resentments can creep up depending on who's in the band. <laughs> say, well, I wrote 39% yeah. of the song, really. It reminds me of the, at the end of a long meal, and one guy says, but I didn't have a prawn cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, like, uh, there's something about that kind of, that time period, and we've covered a lot of albums from that time period, and you see, you start seeing the same names come up all the time, the same great uh, musicians. We've, we've had Ray, Ray Fenwick on the show as well, and oh, great, heard, yeah. heard some of his stories, which was, which was excellent. And, um, you know, when you, you start. You know, in, in a, sorry, I'm interrupting. Sorry. No, please. In, in uh, the stage, you have the Wrecking Crew, as it became known, which is the LA session team. You know that. Well, we have a, um, we had a similar team or set of teams here, it never, but it never had a name. There's a, can you see that little poster behind me there? Um, we're making a, a documentary on it. On One more time, session. it says? Yeah. Yep. It's been in, in, at its seven years so far. Always the, the hard bit is raising money for it. But um, there were little pockets. There was, there was me and Ray Fennick and Henry Spinetti, maybe, um, doing lots of stuff for, for Eddie. And then I had other teams with other drummers and things. And it was all, it was very friendly. It was swapped and mixed and matched. It was great. Yeah, and it's... Um... Like I said, these these names and some of them I've I've looked at, I've looked into and some of them have sort of faded into obscurity and um, yeah. we 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 recognize them when they when we see these you know like the like Liza Strike and Helen Chappelle when they start popping up on every other album as being the backup sure. singers we, we 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 definitely have have taken notice some so you 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 went into this band Fancy with Ray Fenwick and uh, Les Banks did that spring about from this time from the butterfly ball or was that happening before it before yeah um mike hurst producer who was in a band called the springfields do you remember that at all um he's become a producer and he had this idea he wanted to do a a sexy version of wild thing Mm -hmm. girl and uh he found this girl called helen Cont, amazing name who was a penthouse pet she looked great, but couldn't sing, and she was perfect for the role. <laughs> All she had to do was breathe. And he, he got me and Ray in to, to help with the track, and uh, somehow we found Liz, I can't remember. No, 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 sorry, it was um, Henry Spinetti on, on, that, on the track. And the, the song was, it was okay, it was a pop song, but suddenly it took off in the States, into the charts. So we did a backup, a follow-up one, so it got in the charts as well. And this seemed to be too good to be wasted. So we put a band together, 
got found Les Binks and found a singer called Annie Kavner, who was in the show Superstar at the time. <clears throat> and um, we rehearsed, wrote some new stuff, recorded, and toured the States. And it, the trouble was, we were better than, than, than the wild thing. So um, we became a good, funky band, which the audience didn't want. They wanted a pile of shit. It sounded like the record. <laughs> so it was confusing. And it was good fun at the time. Um, and that, so me, Ray, and Les became the, the center of the band for Butterfly Ball. And yeah, and, and and definitely to create create that a feeling for that album, and and it was really exciting because like like gr growing up when we did like I said in the cassette era, uh, we we missed out on a lot of this stuff at at the time. So coming coming across any fancy albums was not <laughs> not going to happen uh, well, in, in the early nineties. It's um, I've been well, we've all been going through our back catalogs, and there are labels that specialize in this now, and fancy we. We, as from this minute, we're bringing out a three CD set, um, with, which is the two main albums, plus some live stuff I found of, of the band playing, and an interview in Memphis and all places. Um, so, if you want to hear the band, it's coming out now, the new set. All right, John, we'll have to cover that on the show. I'll be the first in line oh, yeah. to get that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, obviously, you're. Um, apart from all of these great live performances and everything, your studio um, resume is uh, mind-blowing. And um, when I'm talking to my wife, who basically doesn't know, I mean, she knows what she knows from hearing me blather on about it. And part of doing the show is to save her from having to listen to me. I, John can listen to me instead. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, uh, Whenever uh, you know, so I'm talking to this person today. She's like, "Who is that?" And then I say, "Here's some of the tracks they played on." She's like, "Oh," and you, the the average person on the street might not know Mo Foster's name, or but but when I start to t tell about your resume, they little do they know they've been listening to you their entire life. So, um, what are some of your highlights of this amazing studio career you've had? Oh, oh it's hard. Did, did I send you that list? I did. Did you get that? Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I'm familiar with a, a, a lot of the projects. I'll, I'll send but... it to you. I, I just somebody asked me to write out a list of everything I've played on. Oh, and I freaked myself out. But it, it took a few <laughs> weeks. To, I was finding things in cupboards and looking at this guy <laughs> to help. And it's it's almost 300 albums. Wow, over 50 years. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a big piece of work, and there's a lot of shit there. There really was. <laughs> <laughs> we, we used to have a phrase at the time if, if a piece of music was that bad the phrase was lie back and think of the invoice <laughs> <laughs> but there were the pinnacles there were the great ones um, working with Jeff Beck was such a treat you know he's he's the finest guitar player in the world I think he just improves every day and when I toured with him, did you, would you have been around then? We did tour America in 1980. Uh, it would have been a little before, well, we were around, but we weren't going to concerts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that, was, that, that was wonderful. And I toured with Phil Collins, Gil Evans, I mentioned. Um, Jerry Rafferty is a, a master songwriter, singer. And I did bits of six albums with him. That was wonderful. And just when you stand next to him, this, his mouth opens a little, like a little slit, and out comes this golden sound. It's fantastic. Um, I'm answering your question. Oh, for, oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, there's 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 a lot of um, connections between you and the in the extended Deep Purple family, and we've got um, you know in the early '80s the Michael Schenker group, and with you were with Don Airy and Roger Glover and Simon Phillips and. That's right, yes. How, how was that project? That was amazing. I'd never met Michael before. Um, Simon I knew from, from Jeff. And we got together in a uh, studio in North London. I forgot the name of it now. No, sorry, it's gone. Um, and it, Don wasn't there, actually. Don must have been adding stuff. Oh, okay. Um, it was just Roger producing and the three of us. It was loud. 
we did a rehearsal in a little rehearsal room in Shepherd's Bush in London. And I'm in a small room with Michael Schenker and a double marshalled stack. That, you know, your cheeks are going in. And I, I used to smoke in those days. I had some Marlboro and I used two Marlboro filter in, in my ears. I looked like a twat, but it, it saved my life. <laughs> um, don't ever take photographs. <laughs> yeah. um, that was amazing. It struck me later, very funny, when you hear some of those tracks, the, the energy is fantastic, isn't it? That pounding away. If you could take a photograph of the session, you'd see me sitting there quietly on a chair, staring at the page like this. But out comes the sound. It's so different. It's not what you expect. Right, right. It's, um, and yeah. how, how is working with Roger Glover as a producer? I love him. Um, he just has, has great ideas. He's very sympathetic friendly um it, it just worked and he, he solves problems as well but in this sorry the studio was called wessex it's a big big room and for some reason it was very dead and simon's big kit needs to breathe and it wasn't doing it in the room so roger had this brilliant idea of hiring in a pa system so all the kit was mic'd up into this big bit system which then blasted out into the room and then he mic'd up that so the sound of the kit is an amplified kit in a studio. Oh, wow. That's clever. It's really off. Now I have to listen to that album again with a, <laughs> <laughs> with a different ear. Um, so, I mean, you, you met uh, the Pobola. I, I worked with Ian Pace. I did uh, some tracks for Gary Moore. And, uh, and I think you said that was one of, one of your favorite um, projects, right? Was working with uh, Ian Pace and Gary Moore. It was lovely. Yeah, we did a track called Empty Rooms. It was the first one. And uh, it's just beautiful. It's a lovely track. What was it like uh, working with Gary Moore? I loved him because he, he was um, such a free player, such a, he gave such energy. In fact, when I did my first album in 87, it was called Bellasis, a solo album. Um, I'd asked Jeff to play on it, and to my great surprise, he said yes. I was going to have Jeff Beck on an album. And then a week before the recording, he was working on one of his hot rods, and a plank slipped and trapped his thumb and broke it in two places. So no way can he play. And uh, in panic, I rang up Gary. So, you know, if you can't get Jeff Beck, get Gary Paul. <laughs> not, uh, not a bad replacement. <laughs> not a bad choice, yeah. And uh, he played beautifully. I had to record him in, um, he was on what's called a taxi out of the country. He was in Ireland. He was in Dublin, the studio there called Windmill Lane. And I flew over one Sunday morning with my two-inch 24-track tape, flew to Dublin, set it up, and he played exquisitely. And we did three tracks, packed up the tape, had a pint of Guinness, and flew home. And... Uh, I was terrified on the flight home because I got this un unrepeatable performance of Gary on the tape, not copied. There's no, no, we didn't copy anything in those days. And a guy came and sat next to me on the plane and put his briefcase next to my tape. And my surreal imagination took over. I thought he might be a magnet salesman. For <laughs> 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 <Those> samples. <laughs> I got it home and it was all right. It was great. It played beautifully. Some years later, 10 years ago, we did a, a charity gig in a big field in Sussex, about 3,000 people. And it was my band with Ray Russell and Gary Husband. And uh, Gary was a guest. And I, I couldn't resist this. I brought him on stage, said to the audience, would you please welcome a dear friend of ours and one of the finest guitar players in his price bracket. <laughs> he, he loved it. Uh, um, so, uh, apart from your work on your amazing work and your, your resume here, your your uh, list of albums you performed on, you've got this great book that came out a few years ago, uh, the British, <laughs> British rock guitar. Um, which, you like it. Oh, it's great. We've talked about it a number of times on the show. Um, just 
I mean, I can only imagine the amount of work that you put into a book like this. It's not just like you sat down and typed out some some stories. I mean, the, the pictures and the, the way it's 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 a great book because you could sit down and read it from front to back or you could except you could pick it up at any page and just start reading and get a great little story. You you could be a coffee table, book. it could work in any format. So how did this project come along and how long did it take you to write this? Well, it took a lifetime. I'm just telling a friend of mine said he, he keeps his copy in his toilet. <laughs> gave, him a gave him a problem. He calls it Foster's Ring. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love stories. I'm sure you do. Um, and I just happened to be happened to gather them. I, I, people would often say we'd be chatting around a table. People would, would often say we we must write this down, and no one ever did. But it's very slowly I began to get things together and uh, realised there, there was something here. It took a long time to structure it. I couldn't figure out how to put, you know, what was interesting, what wasn't. And um, I'm, I'm carrying on. I've still been collecting stories. I'll tell you a quick one I love. Uh, I've mentioned Ray Russell, my guitar playing friend, who's on this album. <clears throat> back, jump back to 1967. He's on tour with Cat Stevens. Do you remember Cat Stevens? Mm -hmm. Had a hit at the time called I Love My Dog. And they're touring Sweden. And the support band is the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Not a bad support band. Because they haven't happened yet, you see. And uh, of course, so Ray and he got on because they're both playing Fender Stratocasters. And one night, uh, Ray had gone to bed and he's on the ground floor in this hotel. He hears a tap at the window. He opens the curtains. There's Jimi Hendrix standing there in his full outfit saying, hey, man, I got locked out of the hotel. Can you, can you let me in? So Ray, Ray's in his pajamas or something, and he opens the, the window. Jimi Hendrix climbs in, and they both sit on this single bed. And Ray said, would you like a cup of tea? That's it. <laughs> Not the question you think you'd ask Jimi Hendrix. Is it? <laughs> Yeah, if you could go back and ask Jimi Hendrix any question, what would it be? Yeah. <laughs> would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> so, uh, what am I saying? Um, it took a, a hell of a lot of research. It was all pre-Google. There was no everything was face to face. I had to travel to places to meet people and um, subterfuge, trying to prize, bit, draw uh, photographs out of bottom drawers. It was a very different world then. I loved it because the people are so entertaining and the stories are fantastic. And I'd imagine it's just remembering a lot of stories, like walking down the street and saying, oh, I've got to put this in the book. It just popped in my head and yes. scribbling down notes. I've got to make sure I type this one up. Absolutely. I've got folders of bits of paper, you know, exactly that. Yeah. Um, one, one thing that was both <laughs> good and bad was towards the end of the editing, and I was gonna, I've got a deadline approaching. It, it was driving me crazy because I could hear people talking. It's like a cacophony in my head of, of stories and shouting. And I am the, the only cure, bizarrely, was whiskey. <laughs> and uh, I was getting through a lot of it too much. And the, the day the book finished, I thought, sod this. And I stopped and uh, I haven't drunk since. So it, it was very easy to stop, but it was a, it was a, a terrible time, those two months. Oh yeah, the, this the just trying to wrap up this. Pro I can imagine as tying all of this together had to have been had to have been quite a quite a challenge. Just a bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is great. I I had this out from my my father in law lived in England for uh, about about a decade and uh, in the in the. 70s so and he's really into this kind of music so i had this out when i first got it and he he came over for dinner that night back when he could come over for dinner and um he was just fascinated looking through this book and reading these stories and so oh i know this guy i know that i know that guitar player and did he buy a copy no i should buy him a he just used my copy <laughs> i'll have to buy him a copy next christmas um but what, some of the, the funniest stories uh, in the book are kind of or these older stories of when the electric guitar was new on the scene and people didn't really know how to use it properly. Sure. sure. Um, uh, well, I mean, in England, there, there, there were two contributing factors to that. We had a, what was called a post-war trade embargo in the States. 
which didn't finish till 1960. Mm-hmm. And that meant we could get nothing American, uh, which meant Fenders and Gibsons. Mm-hmm. So English rock and roll started out with players using parts of plywood from Czechoslovakia and Germany. It sounded like plywood. <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't the same. And uh, Hank Marvin got the first track, which is on the cover of that book. Um, <laughs> there's a story there I've got to tell you. Do, you. do you know the name Hank Marvin or of the band The Shadows? So it means something to you? Yes. Yeah. yeah. They, were, um, they, they had a tune called Apache, which launched everybody. It was good. <clears throat> they had a red strat, which is, I'm trying to imagine 1960, it looked like a spaceship. <laughs> and I wanted to get a photograph of it for the cover. And it was only presented by Bruce Welch, who's one of the, the band. And he said, yeah, come around here. He has a house in Richmond near the river. I went around with a photographer for a friend, uh, Christina Jansen. And we photographed his strat. And I, I had to carry it up from his music room to a higher room for light. And then he had to go off. So we're alone in his house. And uh, <coughs> so I carry his strat down to his music room. And I hear a t- terrible crash upstairs. I'm wondering what's happened. I go up and poor Tina has an aluminium stepladder, which he dropped on his white piano. And there was a big V in the wood, you know. And I was mortified. How do, how do you tell this guy you've just fucked his piano? <laughs> and uh, it took a long time, a lot of placating, and uh, I, I resolved it by hiring in some fr- um, experts on that kind of repair, you know, so fix his piano. And a few months later, I had a book launch in, at a place called Dingwalls in London. And there were several luminaries in the audience. Bruce was there, Bruce Welch, and uh, Bill Wyman was there. And I'm starting to tell that story about this. And I hear a heckle coming out of the audience. It's very, it says, what about my fucking piano? <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> you need that, don't you? <laughs> What's amazing to me is the stories of the, the, that that people were trying to didn't know how the guitar worked and were trying to oh, yeah. plug it into the wall yeah it was a oh, common yeah. conception nobody knew you needed an amplifier um, Mike Rutherford of Genesis went with his mum to buy a guitar I think he was 12 and they bought one and the guy in the shop said don't you need an amplifier and Mike said no no he had no idea what he was talking about you don't need an amplifier um, the, the famous one is Francis Rossi of Status Quo who wrote this case saw a cable in there with a jack plug in gen thought that's no good so he cut off one plug and fixed it to the mains plug to plug the guitar in the mains <laughs> and uh, I, he thought he needed time to warm up <laughs> I love I love the idea of where they thought the sound was going to come out of <laughs> yeah they had no idea nobody knew it was so, so new so brand new and my friends at school, we, we had any money, so we made things. We made our own amplifiers, circuits and magazines. And uh, um, we, I made, my first bass was made from an acoustic guitar with strings tuned down. The pickup was two military earphones inside a plastic sandwich. <laughs> and <laughs> it was okay up to the fifth fret from then on. <laughs> But it was exciting, you know, you made things. And still think, um, one of the guys in my band enjoyed making amplifiers, (coughs) but he wasn't very good with materials. He didn't use strong supports and steel and stuff. He used lollipop sticks and sellotape. (laughs) (coughs) And... uh, cinema in, in this big tumble, which is hard to play because of the you know the pitching of the, of the steel and his amplifier is here and it kept cutting out because of the way you built it and it um every time it cut out he'd turn around to do that to the amplifier <laughs> and the steel would be moving up the string a bit as he turned 
<laughs> so the his performance was a sequence of kind of yodels. We were innocent. Well, it's pretty great that you can have that. People. Sorry. Oh, I, I was just thinking it's great that you yeah. had this kind of intimate relationship with your instruments and were able to interact with them that way. Because I think a lot of people nowadays and um, even from our generation, you bought a guitar and that was just the guitar. It was ready to go. You you didn't sure. really know how to fiddle with it too much and you didn't really need to either. Um, yeah. But you have a more intimate sure. understanding of the instrument than our generation probably does. Well, you, you, before you, people like Les Paul did that. They They experimented started so much that he was brilliant so i wonder what how how does it look to you over the course of your career being a musician seeing what a sort of like virtuoso guitar player in nine in the 1950s and 60s would be like versus the things you see today that even in the course of you know my being a fan of music um, I think I, w I would have been astonished at what I've how the progression I've seen uh, musicians make. Like, what what does that look like to you? What, what would you imagined of this future that we're living in now looking like? I think the, the biggest journey is are the Fender guitars. If Leo Fender could have begun to imagine what he, what people did with the Stratocaster, we started out as a country instrument, didn't it? Really. And then a few rockers took it. And Buddy Holly was significant in, in playing it in a rock way. And then it slowly took off. And uh, then people put their personalities on it, like Jimi Hendrix, Jeff Beck, Hank Marvin. It's all the same instrument, but my God, does it sound different. It's fantastic what they achieved. And then there hasn't been any um, other than some kind of... Uh... Show, kind of show weird showy things and there hasn't been a ton of technological advance in the electric guitar in the last 50 years right well yeah little ones i mean it's it doesn't hum so much um it's more stable but not, not that moment in 1954 i think the strat was well beating it was a stunning moment when that guitar came out um, it was an object of... Do you remember the album cover, The Chirping Crickets, Buddy Holly Crickets? Oh, yep. And there's a strap there. We, we used to look at that and wonder what it was. It looked like a mixture of a kind of suite and a, and a, a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea, saying it looked like a spaceship. It was so futuristic looking, right? Yeah, it's brilliant. And the, the weird part for me was discovering that Leo couldn't play. He just took a <laughs> from guys who could and made it happen. And they would have been still primarily using uh, like upright basses at that time, right? It wouldn't have been that common to see an electric bass. Yes, that's right. Um, there was a bit of animosity two ways. One, uh, the, the electric bass called the upright a doghouse. <laughs> and the other way around, they called it a vulgar plank. <laughs> but they're both... Wonderful. I, I love, I, I'm better at electric than upright. I love the, the, the sound of an upright. It's so emotional. In fact, when the, the fretless came in, that was a kind of weird compromise. It was lovely. Do you know how I got my fretless? Do you know about this? No, no. I'd, I'd heard Jacko's album in 76. Loved the sound, but didn't know how he did it. I didn't, what I didn't know was that he just pulled the frets out and put wood filler in. Simple as that. Right. I didn't know. And I went to a, a symphony double bass repairer, guy who does the London Symphony Orchestra. And he had an old ebony neck off an old upright, took off all the frets of my jazz bass, fitted this ebony, went through three plane blades, it was so hard. And I had a fretless. And um, Oh, sorry, you, you broke up for a minute there. In the, oh. Oh. oh, I don't. Oh, I 
yeah, I don't know if you can hear us, but you're frozen again. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you broke up a little bit during the fretless story. Um, so I finish it? <laughs> sure. No. It's just that I, I, I had a, an all black neck, all ebony, and I, I had to go and put some marks on so I could see where my fingers were. Um, but that was it. I, I did it entirely the wrong way, but it sounded great. And it had the, down the bottom, it had a growl like Ron Carter. That's yeah. it was upright. So it was actually a, 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 a neck from an upright bass that you affixed to an electric body? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh, oh wow. And this this was a friend of jazz. Oh and, wow! Um, you can see it has a bit of an overhang. Oh yeah. And the, the marks are put, were put on afterwards. And I, I lost my friend at Deckel. Certainly, so. But that's it. It's lovely. I love the sound it makes. Beautiful. Wow, that's that's something that I just wouldn't even know was possible. <laughs> Yes. I'm going to show you one other bass. This, this, do you know the Olympic? You know the yeah, Olympic yeah. bases? Yeah. Made in California. Um, well, I needed to, in sessions, you have to have all kinds of different sounds available. So, whatever anybody wants, you've got to be able to have it. You could not get Olympics in England, they weren't imported. And I happened to do an album at um, Caribou Ranch. You remember in Colorado? Do you remember that at all? I don't know if I know that. No, okay, it's a wonderful, Jim Garcia had a studio there, beautiful, on a big ranch. And uh, afterwards, instead of going home, I went across to the East Coast and met some friends. And I ended up in um, 48th Street, which I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. And in Sam Ash, they had three Olympics hanging there. This was, this is like treasure. (laughs) And uh, I got this one, bought it. She's quite beautiful piece of yeah, stuff. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, careful. I'm <laughs> re- you know, recorded with it and toured with, toured with, with Jeff Beck that came on the road with me. And then, um, what year? About 85. It was a hot day and my front door got left open a teeny bit. Someone just walked in, saw a tall case, and off with it. It disappeared. And um, three years later, that's 30 something years later, I get a, a call from a guy in Cambridge. And we chat, and it turns out he's got it. He, he bought it very cheap somewhere in some weird, it's gone around. It actually had been very badly damaged. Oh, wow. And um, he was very kind. He got on the train, came to London, and gave it back to me. Wow. What a, what a wonderful gift that is, isn't it? So how, how did he know it was yours? There was, he, his teacher had found my name inside a, a pocket somewhere in the case. Oh, wow. Huh. <coughs> and um, I had to, it took six months to get it restored. It was such a state. Oh, God. All, all the, the lack of curling. And it's just wonderful to have it back. But after 37 years, it's very weird. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't appear on any of my own albums because I didn't have it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Are you using that on your uh, most recent recording? No, because it was, it was just one Fender on the, on the live stuff. Wow. Well, that, that's got to kind of feel relieving and yeah, kind of strange at the same time, right? Odd, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't play it at first. It's, it's like you meet a very old friend or something. You you're cautious and you, you have to feel your way back into something. You know, just. <laughs> so you're like meeting an old friend from grade school that you haven't seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, um, Mo, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to speak with us this morning. This has been uh, a real treat for us to be able Pleasure. to talk with you. I hope it was interesting. Oh, it's always interesting. And every, every, um, when we were, we were talking to, um, 
a couple years ago, I think. No, we had a we, we talked with Martin Ford, um, had him oh, on the show, yes. and yeah. and I mentioned something about you, and he said, "Oh, Mo will be he, Mo will be much more interesting than me. He'll have some great stories." <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, great. And uh, yeah, Martin was great. Did he tell you? Did he tell you, <coughs> did he tell you his dog shit story with Phil Collins? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Martin did some orchestral stuff on Phil's album, mm -hmm. and uh, he arrived at Phil's house one day. Phil just had a beautiful carpet fitted in his, in his living room. And Martin comes in, says, great, and walks, walks around the room. <laughs> Not realizing there was a big dog turd stuck in his shoe and it spread all over this new carpet. It's <laughs> 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 a great, great, great uh, first impression to make, right? <laughs> exactly, yes, yes. In fact, if you look at Phil's first album, there's a credit to Martin Kicker's Four. <laughs> Oh man, he didn't tell that story. Maybe that story is a little more painful for him. Probably. <laughs> for you. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, well, thank you again so much for coming on. So how, how are gonna pe people going to find this new album? When's it coming out? How do they find you? It's, it's coming out in uh, middle, of, middle of March. That's, what, two months. Uh, the label is Right Track Records. Um... That's all I can tell you right now. I'm, I'm sure you'll find it from that. It's called Mo Foster and Friends in Concert. And it, and it looks like this. <laughs> ah, great. We'll be sure to post the links to all that when it comes out, too. So. I mean, that, you, you spoke to Sam, didn't you? Sam? Yes. The, she'll tell you everything. Oh, great. I can't believe it. At my age, I've got a PR person. I've never had <laughs> It's the first time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Oh, she's great. So, well, Mo, thank you so much for coming on our show. We really appreciate talking to you. Great. Yeah, me too. All right. Have a great day. Thank you. See you again. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also give us a rating on iTunes to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening. Do you realize this is like a seance? <laughs> <laughs> Mo Foster has entered the room. <laughs>